I, uh, first of all, it's nice to do Tuesday mornings. I like to get to see everybody on Tuesday morning. Um, does, does anybody have any questions or anything that they're curious about? Maybe, maybe you have a better topic than I do. Or anything you've, you've had thoughts about or questions about or comments about? Confusion about? <laughs> Anybody enlightened? Uh huh. Are some of the monks that have been here over the last few months, are they at some of these other places that are listed, like Nevada, Louisiana? Uh, it seems like faces have changed over say, the last year. I just wondered if some of them are in other places. Well, if you're talking, we had a lot of monks here on Buddha Day, and that. Uh, the days before and after. And most of those monks are monks who used to be here, but now they're in some of those other locations. But right now, Bhante Sumana, who you probably think is one person you're thinking of, is no longer, he lives now out of, out of the area, and he's no longer a monk. So he chose to become a lay person again. So he's uh, he's still in Illinois, but I think he's living in Peoria right now. So he's not here, and Bhante Bhadia is traveling and visiting his visiting with his family in Sri Lanka. So he's coming back the beginning of July. So he's just temporarily away. So, but sometimes the other monastics you may see. Uh, especially for big events, they're from the other. They've been, they have been here before, but they've they're now out at some of those different locations. So that's in. Uh, well, the, somebody will be going out to Las Vegas, but there's a group out there that's that's a Blue Lotus group, but without a monk. And then in Pennsylvania, Bante Soma Somananda is there, and in Florida, <coughs> there are three monks who. <coughs> were here at the very beginning, uh, some of the first monks who worked with Bhante Sujata, and they're in Florida now, and just this last, uh, I think just last December, they became a Blue Lotus group. So they, and they just bought a building that's, uh, they can, they'll be able to have their, a lot of their groups in. And where else? <laughs> Louisiana, we have Bhante Damadasi, and he was here. And then the monks here, Bhante Asaji, and Bhante Amita, who's not here right now, and myself, and now we have Bhikkhuni Damika. And uh, she's a new face. So, so right now we have two nuns and two monks, and then in July we'll have three, three monks and two female monks. Bhante Sujata is always off somewhere, so <laughs> I have no idea where he is. <laughs> I don't go on Facebook, so th- the less I know, the better off I am. <laughs> uh, it, I, I'm happier not going on Facebook. <laughs> That's a good question, thank you. It's because you, you do see, it does seem, sometimes it feels to me like faces are changing all the time but usually they're coming and going. 
And Todd, who works in the office along with Tessa now, and Tessa's a new face, uh, Todd's been in Pennsylvania helping Bhante Somananda start the temple there. <clears throat> so now we get him back for a while, then he'll go back to Pennsylvania to help help out help out Bhante Soma again. So we have to share him. <laughs> we put him on a longer leash. <laughs> and there are other people who are volunteers. We always need volunteers. And one of the things the volunteers do is help tutor the monks from Sri Lanka. And Bikuni uh, Damika is from China. And there, she was a Mahayana Bikuni there. And then she she came to Sri Lanka for more studies and became a Theravadan bhikkhuni. So she's she's double ordinated. <laughs> and so they they have tutors helping them with their English, and we have you know vol- a lot of volunteers who are big big chunk of the energy here, at Blue Lotus. So. It's good to it's good to know. <laughs> Thanks for the question. Uh huh. What's the difference between Maya and uh, Inayana and Theravada? <laughs> well, Hinayana we don't use that term anymore. That's basically was a that was a Mahayana term, and it's really what we call Theravada now. So it was, I think, kind of a derogatory term. Like the old school, it was like the elder, the old monks, the elder, elder monks. But that the Theravada, Theravadan is is what used to be called Hinayana. And and maybe your first talk when you do a Dhamma talk can be about Mahayana yeah. Buddhism. She's working on it. So um, I have. There are a lot. There are. You know, we all all Buddhists are essentially. We have the same, we're all students of the Buddha's, we, of the Buddha's teachings. But the, the Theravadans are considered, we are considered old school, but that's a good thing, right? I mean, we, we go back to the Buddha's earliest recorded teachings. So we focus on the things the Buddha taught and the things the Buddha said. And so if you Google what the Buddha taught or what the Google, what the Buddha said, what the Google said, that's, 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 <laughs> That'll be next, right? <laughs> but if you if you Google what the Buddha taught or what the Buddha said, you get amazing number of resources. And a friend of mine was doing that because she's taking the precepts, and she also found some of the books on our precept list in a PDF form. So I don't think you have to really buy any of these books if you if you can search the internet. Uh, but but the but I think the main difference between the Theravada tradition and for me and Mahayana is that the we we the Theravadans tend to stick with the teachings of the Buddha, and we have lots of wonderful teachers who have come since the Buddha and a lot of but but we're looking at how they maybe are commentaries to what the Buddha said or expound on what he said, but. But but we're we we always keep going back to the teachings of the Buddha. That's our primary focus. So the earliest documented teachings that that are considered the origins of Buddhism. And Mahayana tradition has other teachers, but I don't want to 
we'll let her talk about that one. <laughs> but they have a, they have, they have added some things to the original teachings of the Buddha. But, um, we all are students of the Buddha and we're all trying to live the, according to the way the Buddha taught, you know, to live a, a moral life and a, uh, the Eightfold Path is part of all the traditions and the Four Noble Truths are part of the... So the essential teachings of the Buddha basically are the Four Noble Truths and a really profound experiential understanding of that and the Eightfold Path and the Ten, uh, the ten per- Perfections, or we call them sometimes the Bodhisattva Vows, but that's a, uh, those are the essential teachings of the Buddha. So the precepts are part of that essential body of teachings. Um, so morality, when we talk about the precepts, and I talk about it all the time, all summer long, to prepare for the October precept ceremony, um, it gets a little tiresome maybe, but the, but the precepts in, are basically the knowledge and, and getting on the path of experiencing all of those essential teachings of the Buddha. And it's, it's a good way to look at how do I study what the Buddha taught. Begin with the Four Noble Truths, and then that moves you right into, because it talks about suffering and the end of suffering, and the end of suffering we find from moving into and living the Eightfold Path. And then that Eightfold Path includes the five precepts, the eight precepts, and the ten perfections. So all of that is part of uh, how the Buddha told us, if you live this way, if you live with this, the Eightfold Path as uh, the what you constantly are getting back into that path. Like we're not doing it one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, but we're usually working on some part of the eight all the time. And if we, if we're on that path, that's the way out of this, this other wheel that we're on that's samsara, that's just that endless circle of life and death, life and death, life and death, you know. That's, uh, that's samsara, that's the way this world operates. But the eightfold path, which is always pictured in a circle, is like, that's, the, that's an alternative. If we want to get off that wheel of samsara, then, then the Buddhist teachings about the Four Noble Truths and the, the eightfold path and all of the teachings on virtue and morality, those are the, that's the way to that's how we start and finish getting off of this uh, attachment that we have to the world and everything in the world. So it's, it's, a, it's the essential part that we're trying to get and understand. And once we understand that part, everything else is just a beautiful additional teaching that helps us then go deeper and then we get back to the essential teachings and we keep going, you know, into a more subtle understanding and a, uh, we see it more in our life and how everything we do gives, we get instant feedback closer and closer that feedback is we're knowing if what we're doing is skillful or not skillful because the feedback we get we start 
getting it pretty quickly after, you know, we, are, we get more sensitive to our behavior and our speech and our action and how we are in the world. So I think for all the, te- all the different schools of Buddhism, th- that should be the essential basic part of their practice. It's easy to get, uh, it's easy to be a scholar, you know, it, because there's so much written. And the Buddha lived a long time, so he had so many teachings. So it's very easy to get totally into a track of being a Buddhist scholar. But that doesn't mean you're a Buddhist practitioner. So I think we have to keep, I think a balance between the two, to me, a balance between those two is really, um, if we want to be a student of the Buddhist teachings, and that means we have to experience everything he talks about. It has to become our own personal experience. And we're lucky because we have a, a teacher who, and there's so many writings about what that teacher taught that that gets us going on the path, but then we have to experience everything he told us was out there. But he didn't tell us, so we just took it on faith. He said, now I'm giving, I'm giving you, like, here's the way the path starts, and now you have to walk the path. So I think that's the, that's the wonderful part about the teachings of the Buddha. It, it has to be that we experience everything he taught us. We have to experience it and validate it within ourselves and see that it works, see that it, that it, uh, that what, what we experience is, is working for us to help our lives be transformed, to be happier to be able to let go, um, to let, you know, we're, we're, we're letting go of stuff all the time, the stuff that we don't need, and the stuff that doesn't, that isn't uh, helpful. So it's, that's, that's the path that all Buddhists should be. I think if people think of themselves as Buddhist, part of that means that I have to actually experience what the Buddha told, talked about. So coming to a temple is, is not as important as maybe going to church on Sunday is or going to a, a, a synagogue is because we're, this, we come here just for our own, uh, like a beautiful place, a quiet place to come and practice. And we come to learn how to, how to meditate. But, but, uh, you know, Bhante Sujata will often say, why are you here? <laughs> he comes back from a long trip and he's, he'll say, you know, why are you coming here? And it's always kind of jarring. I think he's just trying to remind us that this is an active path. This is a path where I don't think he's trying to tell people don't come to Blue Lotus because then we just wouldn't even need the building. But um, it's we have to always think about why are we here like are we are we were we letting just this beautiful space and uh, coming here and meditating once in a while are we letting that be what we think of as following the path of the buddha or are we are we living that path are we living it in our everyday life and we come here to recharge 
to rejuvenate, you know, to re refresh ourselves, and then we go back out into the trenches. And uh, that, that I think that's the reminder that he's trying to... I hope that's the reminder he's... <laughs> I don't like to entertain the other thoughts that come to mind. <laughs> that's why we have to keep this building going. Uh-huh. I see two... I have been struggling with one of the precepts. Um, That's good. <laughs> okay. <laughs> um, the one about not killing. And there's a story we heard at least twice about someone who had a, who was predicted to not live long, but when he was out in the woods, he saw some ants that were drowning in a stream, so he rescued them and, and then he ended up prolonging its own life. It was a very, I, I got really got that story. It's a nice story. Um, but now we have, I discovered, I think some ants eating in our house. <laughs> <laughs> and I can't get in there, hand by hand, pick every one and take them somewhere else. Uh huh. So we're going to, you know, I mean, the, the answer is to call the pest person to come in and take care of it. But it's the conflict, that, you know. I, I feel like I'm being critical. Now, I think we, I think that conflict is part of the, the the life as it is today. Like whenever we, the 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 potential is always there when we build a building, when we build a road, when we, you know, build a park. It, uh, we're always there. There are always living things that are being killed. You know, when we drive a car, when we walk down the street. I think. Uh, when when you have when we have things that are destroying the home we live in, I think if there isn't a humane way to relocate them, like maybe if it was a nest of bees, you could relocate them rather than burn them out. You know, which is what people tend to do. But um, you, the Buddha talks always tells us that we have this is a middle path. We're taking. He's talking about moderation in everything we do. And he was, there were actually uh, other spiritual groups during his lifetime who were really extreme. You know, they were, they were either mortifying their own flesh or they were uh, not eating right because they weren't, they were only eating what fell to the ground. You know, they, they were being so extreme. And he really, that was part of his reason to talk about a middle path. That we have to live in this world, and sometimes we have to make tough decisions like that. And, and what we can do is see if there's any kind of humane alternative. And sometimes we, if we want to have a house to live in, we have to get rid of the creatures that are eating it up. And I think, I don't know if anyone else has a, a different opinion about that, or but you know, we have, this building, this old building is always having to have work done on it. So, uh, like we have bats, and I think we try to get rid of the bats humanely, but I think, I don't know if that's always going to be the case. If they start swooping, you know, it's... <laughs> But if we had, if we we have to we have to keep making repairs on the buildings, so we have to, you know, there'll be times when we may have to deal with that. Um, 
we're killing mold all the time or trying to, but I don't know if mold counts as a <laughs> one of those beings we have to be careful about. So I think what you have to do is make a judgment. There are so many things like that. We have to make a judgment that's that's that feels like it's uh, appropriate for the kind of life that we live. We can't go to the extremes either. We don't. We don't want to be just trying to. I I notice where I live, but it's an apartment building, so I don't have any control over it. They are spraying and killing things all the time where it seems unnecessary, and they don't even put up signs saying, "We just sprayed toxic stuff. Don't let your pets walk on it." And so it it just seems like it's overkill and. Uh, that that I feel like is excessive. It's not good for the planet. It's not good for the people who walk and the animals who walk or live in the the in the grass and the in the earth. So I think a lot of that is definitely could be cut back, and everybody would be happier and live longer. But when you're when you're really when you're really considering and thinking about it, I think that's the important thing. And the decision you make is based on the right information, but you don't—you can't let your house be eaten, right? <laughs> Nobody wants to do that. Uh huh. That's you. Yeah, um, I've been working for a long time on uh, loving kindness, and, and I seem to be uh, really along the path, and I, I get a lot of joy. some reason I don't feel love and I don't know how to make somebody love me. I know how to love somebody, but I don't know how to make somebody love me. And I was just wondering, uh, uh, am I going to, uh, is, is there a way to shift this, you know? I mean, uh, I don't know. I don't, I, I don't know. I, I would truly love to be loved by somebody. Uh, but it doesn't seem to be happening, and it's either because I don't see what it is, or I don't even know what it is. I, I grew up in a horrendous childhood and all this stuff, and alcoholic for years, and and, and uh, I'm uh, very, very. Um, I don't know what it is to be loved. I really don't. And I was wondering if there was any. I know how to love, but I don't know how to be loved, and I was just. Curious if there was, because uh, uh, I don't have a long time left, you know. So uh, it's going to happen. It's going to have to happen. I have to do no. See, a, I have to do something. How can you do something to make someone love you? I don't. I don't get it. I know how to. Love. Yeah. I know how to do something to be loved. To, to love. To love. But I don't know how to, do something <laughs> to make somebody or make somebody love. So that's an interesting question. I don't. Four hours. <laughs> Is there a ma Mahayana teaching? Yes. Can you, can you talk about it? <laughs> no, I don't know how to, how to teach in English. I, okay. I, I, I know there are four, four ways to make other people love you. 
There are. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Yeah, that'll yeah, be it. You could do a whole more. class. So she said, now, Bhante Asaji, do you know those four teachings in our tradition? Yeah. Yeah, well, well that's a... Okay, well, to be continued. So at least in the Mahayana tradition, there are four teachings of how... How, how people you can have people love you. I don't know uh, specifically anything that the Buddha taught. He does, you know, he does say that the benefits of loving kindness practice are that people are attracted to you, and I and I think he's talking about your just your whole your presence becomes uh, safe. You know, you people are attracted to you because you you're open and you you. You probably have an aura that's very uh, feels welcoming to people, but I don't know if those are the what the teachings are that. But she'll she's going to work on that. We're going to crack that nut. <laughs> I think later I can give you materials to you. You can teach that. Okay, until you could get until yeah, you're yeah. ready to teach it. She'll give me the materials, and we'll look at it. That's a very interesting topic. I hadn't thought about that. But keep keep doing the practice you're doing because I would think that that's that's certainly the way to to be. Then you might have to just go online and find somebody. <laughs> Spread your net out further. Right? <laughs> okay, we'll get more on that. That's good. Uh huh. I think so. Yeah, it's like it's like the being loving kind out of the goodness of our heart, but not Not really. Yeah. For like recognition and then and then not being loving kind and they roll it into your face and it's like why should you do that in the first place? Right. Like someone who does a kindness to you, but if you don't appreciate it or that's the same as giving someone a gift. If you give someone a gift and then you have expectations of how they're going to like the gift or how grateful they're going to be, or, and then then you don't do, then you don't react the way they want you to react, then they're angry. Yeah. I feel like yeah. Uh huh. Uh-huh. Right. That's basically they don't realize what they're doing. I don't. I think the that's hard to. You can't change people like that. You have to be able to not take it personally. The Buddha often talked. There are different stories about 
uh, if someone would come up to the Buddha and start being really angry and saying all kinds of mean things, and they would wonder why the Buddha didn't react. And he would, he would use the, the image, he would say, if someone, uh, you know, you prepared a wonderful meal for someone and they didn't eat it, you know, you offered them this generous gift and they didn't eat it, what would you do? And he said, well, I would just, you know, take it back. And, and uh, he said, well, I'm going to let you take back. Like he wouldn't own the, their anger or their uh, whatever they were shooting at him, whatever barbs they were shooting at him, he would, he would not accept it. It was like a gift. If someone doesn't want a gift, then you would give the gift back to the person who gave it to you. So you, you need to be uh, not taking that, their behavior personally. That's, that's, that's the most important thing you can do. If they don't seem genuine when they offer you something, probably better not to take their offer, or even, uh, you know, it might be better to just recognize that that person is usually has other ideas, other uh, goals. But if they, if they end up being upset with you because you didn't respond the way they wanted you to, you can just uh, see that as a gift that you couldn't accept. You, you won't take, you're not going to take that on personally, their anger or their frustration. You have to give that back to them. You just have to not, you know, not accept it. So that means they have to take it back. Does, does that make sense? Yeah. <laughs> They've done something nice for you, and then later they're saying, but I did this for you. Yeah. Yeah, those are your difficult people, so one, you can put them in your loving-kindness practice, but then, you, know, then you, you have to maybe back away from those people. Be sure you don't. Uh, you, you know, you have to understand the nature of how they're operating and, and just be careful. And, and then when they do come back and they, they become upset with you because of something they did nice for you a year ago or a week ago and you're not reciprocating or you're not grateful enough, you, you, you know it's important to try not to take that personally. For pretty much everything, a good rule of thumb is don't take anything personally. Because that's, that's not the way you want to behave. You know, you can see it as kind of a, uh, wow, I don't want to be that way to other people. But we, the, the biggest thing that we do is often to take things personally that are, it doesn't need to be about us. It doesn't need to be that we take it in. Just because someone's giving us that anger, they're giving us their irritation, we don't have to accept that gift. You can say, thank you for your opinion. <laughs> you know, sometimes we have to be really careful about those boundaries we set for ourselves. Don't get caught up in their, the way they think. That's hard, that's I know that's hard to do, but try to just work on it little by little.
Okay, I think our time is up. Yeah, so thank you everybody. Good questions. <laughs>